0: Hey friends, it's another great conversation on the part of our Fabric podcast. Fleece and Thank You is amazing podcast with amazing guests like, what is this now? Maybe fourth time conversationalist, four. Nick Anarino, Associate Professor of Health Communications at U of M Dearborn. Nick, welcome back for what I think is the four peat.
1: It is. Thank you so much for having me. It's like one more than, uh, well, two less than Michael Jordan, but yeah, one more <laughs> than his individual three feet. So we're, yep, we're, 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 we're getting there.
0: Hey, you're in good company when you're in the same <laughs> sentence as Michael Jordan.
1: <laughs> wow. Awesome, man.
0: Well, yeah, excited to just jump in today. You just have so much knowledge on such a variety of topics. Uh, you've helped a ton in the past conversations. What what are we going to be talking about uh, today? What have you brought for us?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I I thought it would be maybe a good time, considering the fact that everybody is dealing with with illness and their families and um you know hopefully it, you know everyone has, has been able to if, if they've had covid they've been um able to kind of uh, get get it and get over it and um I, I thought it would maybe be a good time to talk about family caregiving and maybe some of the challenges related to that when you know because at some point in our lives you know some some of you probably already have been or currently are a caregiver and at some point in your life you will be a caregiver or you will need caregivers and so um i, I thought it maybe would be a good time to talk about who this falls to and um, maybe how to manage some of the conflicts that might arise from this.
0: Mm, Yeah, really interesting. The concept of caregiving is maybe for some a word that they think, oh, I'm not that, but we either are, have been, or unfortunately just how life goes probably will be for multiple people at some point in our life. So this is a pretty universal topic.
1: Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And um, so I've, I've studied it primarily in like large families. And I think it's probably because I'm from a pretty big family myself. Um, and so of course, you know, as, as people get old, as uh, society gets healthier, overall, and technology increases, we have more and more uh, people who are getting older and older. And so um, the need for caregiving is just going to be increasing in, in the coming years, the coming mm-hmm. decades.
0: In our uh, pre-podcast talk, you mentioned the sandwich generation. Can you tell me more about that? Because that was the first time I've heard that.
1: Yeah. So the sandwich generation refers to um, generally people around their 40s and 50s who, you know, the, the average age of a family caregiver is 49. And these are people that have not only their own kids and their own spouses and, you know, their own familial responsibilities and their own careers, But they are also in a situation where they're having to take care of their parents. And so they're often caught in the middle with competing demands and not really enough time to take care of themselves. So that sandwich generation obviously refers to, you know, you're being pushed on either side by your own kids and your own parents. And um, so according to the American Association of Retired Persons, AARP, you know, caregiving lasts for an average of 4.6 years, Hmm. And usually it's like 20 hours a week. And so think about what you do for 20 hours a week. That's like the equivalent of squeezing, you know, like two additional full-time work weeks into every month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one in five caregivers work over 40 hours a week anyway. And so a lot of times you're in situations, if you're an adult, um, you might spend more time caring for your own parents than you will raising your own kids. And so um, it's obviously important to help these people. We don't really have a national initiative Um, or national like infrastructure to help family caregivers the way we do patients in some cases, but um, you know, it's important to protect the health of caregivers because if they're sick, then the initially sick person is going to get worse you know, maybe, and uh, the caregiver is going to have their own health issues and both people are going to be bouncing around the health the healthcare system.
0: Mm-hmm. So, are you um, doing some research on this now, or have conducted some research on this area? And tell us about that.
1: Yeah, gosh, oh man, all the way back in I was in grad school. It was part of a class we took, an in interpersonal health communication, which is focused more on kind of individual relationships and families. And um, as part of this class, instead of writing a final paper, I was awesome. Uh, my pr- professor, who was very smart, Dr. Allison Scott Gordon, she. Was like instead of you guys having to write a paper that i have to grade how about we all like do you know split up into three groups we'll all collect our own data and i will not only get my own publications to get tenure but so you know you guys will get your own studies and stuff yep. and your own data and so she's like plus i don't have to grade as much so she's smart, <laughs> a lot smarter than me in terms of logistical planning in that regard but like so basically what we did was um we drove all over kentucky all over ohio which is from where i'm from originally um, all over Indiana, and we talked to um, siblings, either in like pairs or in like groups of three. but we like we would talk to them individually, right? So um, they can kind of, you know hear the dirt about each family member and that kind of stuff, and you know, saying things they maybe wouldn't talk about in front of each other, like if they weren't see. Mm-hmm. So we ended up talking to seventy one siblings. Wow. Um, from 30 different families kind of about their experience um, caring for a parent who was approaching end of life and most of my research does deal with like how to have those conversations um, related to like end of life decisions and you know getting an advanced directive and and those kind of things Um, but yeah what, what we focus on so far is how is involvement this idea of like being involved how is that negotiated among family members, and what happens when sometimes it falls to one or two siblings taking care of a parent, and you have these other siblings who are maybe making excuses for why they can't be there? and how does that you know most involved sibling like respond to that dilemma? Do they um, excuse it, or do they say, "Well, you know, oh, you know?" I didn't, I didn't care. I can handle everything on my own anyway, or like they protect their sibling and be like, Oh, you know, he's so busy with work and just couldn't handle seeing dad in that state. Or, you know, did they shame or guilt trip them essentially? And, and, mm-hmm. and essentially like, how did they manage? And I might've talked about this before, but how do they manage the task goal? Like, how do we take care of our parent, make these decisions, get them the best care possible and allow them to live the rest of their life as fulfilling and as filling away as possible while still protecting their relationship with their siblings, their relationship with their parents and everybody's identity, right? Because you don't want to call somebody out and make them feel like a bad kid or a bad sibling if they're not um, pulling their weight. And so it's this like weird dance we kind of have to do um, to to negotiate whatever, I mean, every family has their own definition of like what constituted fair share of involvement and Mm -hmm. so how do we like perceive these violations um and how do we like you know have these conversations in ways that prioritize both like the task goals and like the relational goals and so that's kind of what what we've been working on
0: yeah wow when you talk about the sandwich generation Mm -hmm. for fleece and thank you we're serving a population that for us we're just very focused on you know patient probably zero to 18 and then Mm -hmm. their parents And Mm -hmm. that is probably a prime age for the sandwich generation and thinking about, you know, the next level of probably some of the parents that we serve at Fleece and Thank You who are in sandwich generation going through a really, really tough, dark, scary, crazy, uncertain time with their kid and moms in hospice. Dad just got diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, all those things. That's like the double whammy. So your research, interestingly, focuses on um, maybe a, a mix of both how can they care best for the more so the end of life side but both but really also just how do they cope so that they're okay and how is their oxygen mask on so that they can help the others.
1: Absolutely yeah that's the metaphor we always use is you know you can't help uh anybody else unless you make sure you help yourself first right so um yeah which it's so it,
0: counterintuitive in our society mm-hmm. isn't it like it's interesting like if you got to say it the right way, don't you? Or someone's gonna be like, it sounds selfish, but it's totally not selfish at all when you've got the long play in mind. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, for sure. And it's just like, I mean, you have, it's so hard to get so many times, like there's just this pervasive sense of guilt. And I think a lot of cases in caregiving where like you never feel like you're doing enough or you never feel like you're doing the right thing. And it's because it's not always the most rewarding, obviously the most rewarding work. And there's so much burden, you know, obviously in some ways it's, it is rewarding because you can like recontextualize your relationship with your parents or whoever you're taking care of, but also there's, you know, undeniable financial burden. There's emotional burden of seeing your loved one in distress, just the physical burden too, of having to just be physically exhausted. But, um, it's almost, it's very difficult to peel sometimes people away or to enable them to have the opportunity to go do some sort of self-care or to do some yoga or to like, you know, go sleep in their own bed or whatever. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, what we need is are more interventions that help not only improve the stress level for caregivers and their ability to cope, but also to improve like their sense of like self-efficacy or their, their like sense that they know what they're doing, their sense of confidence in caregiving so that that can help their coping as well. Right. Like improve their skills and improve the coping.
0: hmm So uh, tell us how, let's jump right in. Cause I'm hanging on your words right now of like, cool. I feel like I'm going to be in this situation, you know at some point, Uh, I feel like there's people listening that are in it right now. Did your research also show you the how side of it?
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's, every family is different again. And so we don't always want to just like tell every family to be open about everything, right? Like, because some, for some families it's that's not always the best advice. Like sometimes um, one of my favorite studies looked at uh, families of lung cancer patients who were terminal, and um, they they recommended that you know like every family would be like yeah we we're totally open about everything we totally have every discussion, uh, but then they would list like all the ways in which they would dance around certain subjects, and so mm-hmm. they called it being open without talking about it. And so in some cases, in family members, that that's fine, um, you know, avoiding certain issues. Generally in the US, we want as many families to, as possible to have like high quality conversations about caregiving situations and about end of life conversations, because we want the patient to have the most say and in, in what kind of treatment they do or don't receive. And we want siblings to kind of, you know, put it out there about what they can and can't do. I think the worst, the worst thing in most cases is siblings who feel blindsided by people not showing up when maybe they expected them to. Mm -hmm. and so i think as much as possible as much as family members feel comfortable doing that like getting it out all on the table
0: why is it so tough to have those conversations it sounds so easy to say it but i'm thinking about it too and like man maybe i would clam up and just take it on for myself why is it so hard for us to have those
1: yeah and this is definitely um this is definitely a, a cultural thing in the u.s i think we you know some families in some ways just were never good at talking openly about difficult things and so like serious illness would be no different and like a lot of times families worry about being too emotional or like too overwhelmed to make a decision or to agree on a plan or they worry that having a conversation would make each other be really anxious or to lose hope or to give up or maybe you have different um, siblings or different family members who have different ideas of what quality of life means right because that's kind of a very subjective subject so like you know, maybe they think that putting the parents in some sort of assisted, facility, uh, assisted living facility would be a, a no-go, a, like absolutely nothing. I don't even wanna talk about that option, but they don't wanna bring them to their own house. But, um, you know, but other siblings are like, wait, but they can't live on their own. Like this, the, it's just the, the quality of life issue. W- how would we want the parent to continue to live the rest of their life is, is, they're different. And a lot of times we have siblings who, deny the reality of the situation too and they feel like uh well this isn't just like this isn't as serious as everyone thinks it's going to be here They're, they always pull out of this kind of thing and they don't really grapple with the reality of, of what's going on unless you just have like you know your whole family your whole family dynamics you never really grow out of all of it right like right. um if you if you spend a lot of time away from home like if you move away and then maybe you like go see your siblings again you kind of feel yourself slipping back into those roles sometimes in those rivalries and. Um, some of those unresolved things can continue to pop up and can affect the conversations we have.
0: Yeah, for sure. For someone, you know, well, based on your research, what would your advice be for the person who's, who's saying in their head and their thoughts that I, I want to take this on. It doesn't seem like my siblings can deal with it right now. Mm-hmm. I'm fine to bear it. I don't want to put this on them. I'm not sure if they could handle it. If I shared with them, how close to the brink I am of just snapping because I haven't slept in my bed in three mm-hmm. months and I have like, you know, all those things. What well, what's your research and advice tell that person?
1: It just depends on if they've even, so if, if they're hesitating to even have that conversation, I would suggest that they try to get help in whatever way they can. And hopefully that is like asking the siblings, at least put them kind of on the spot to, to, to say no. Um, you know, sometimes we have those kind of siblings who feel like they are very much like the control freaks, the ones who feel like they can kind of do it all on their own. Um, and eventually those people burn out. It's really hard to kind of maintain that. Um, so I would recommend in some cases taking a step back and trying to find a way to, to get some sort of help.
0: Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's a heavy, heavy cross to bear, so to speak, isn't it?
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately you want what's best for the person who's, who's ill. And so, Mm -hmm. um, what can you do to, you know, if if you're kind of at your wits end, what can you do to maybe supplement the care that, that you're providing to your loved one?
0: For sure. For sure. Wow. So you got in a car and just drove around and that was how the research initially started that, like you glossed over that, but just the fact that you got in a car, drove multi state and found, you know, 71 plus people to interview and here we. There's are a lot talking.
1: of people, yeah, sat in a lot of Starbucks, sat in a lot of uh, people's houses. So I've never met. Uh, it was really interesting, though. I, I really love, I love doing qualitative like interview research because um, it gives you so much insight into people's experiences, and you get to talk to people you normally wouldn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I know part of your research was on kind of the heavier side of like the end of life piece. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you went into like the conversational side of that, or again, the caregiver side, how they care for themselves when that is in the picture and, you know, full disclosure for those listening, just last couple minutes here, but could be a little bit of heavier content. Just want to hear from you, Nick, what the research tells you there, the advice there on that end of life piece, how it worked into your research and what specifically you learned out of it that we can benefit from.
1: Sure. So, so like I said, like, you know, we, in the U S at least like we want as many families as possible to have high quality end of life conversations, because we want the patient to have the most say in what kind of treatment they do or they don't receive, you know, in, in their final days. And, um, kind of for a lot of the same reasons why I discussed that family members, like avoid the conversations about caregiving is also very true with end of life conversations. And so you know, you have family members protecting themselves and protecting the patient, protecting each other from these negative feelings by either putting these conversations off or not having them at all. And so in in the U S like around 92% of adults feel like talking with their loved ones about end of life care is important, but only 30, 32% have actually done, had those conversations.
0: Hmm.
1: And can you say those been, stats again? Yeah. So 92% of adults, like they feel like having uh, the conversations with their loved ones about like what they want at the end of life is important, but only about 32% of Mm. U.S. adults have actually done so. Wow. It's actually worse. The numbers are worse for getting an advanced directive, um, which is part of, you know, if you like have a legal will, right. Um, An advanced directive is part of that, that discusses kind of what medical decisions do I want toward the end of life? If I have do not have the ability to, to make these decisions myself. Right? Mm. Um, it's, it's like usually formed around um, what medical treatment people do not want, right? So a big part of that advanced care directive is the DNR, the do not resuscitate, right? So if a, if a person ends up um, coding or having no vital signs, they if you have this documentation on you, you will not be resuscitated or revived, right? Um, But only about one in four US adults have completed that advanced care directive. And so obviously, we want those numbers to to increase. And um, because study after study has shown that, you know, end of life conversations can be helpful for everyone involved, and they can lead to higher quality care. And um, if you don't have that written out, and if you have family members who don't exactly know what you want at the end of life, Which is three out of three out of every four don't yeah yes yeah with without an advanced care directive yeah the the official document um you only have about a 50 percent chance you have a coin flip chance at getting getting the 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 getting the preferences correct Mm -hmm. right um and that's often because we err on the side of like projecting what we would want onto the other person or we would like err on the side of over treatment because in our society, like we don't like to give up. We don't like the death is often equated with like losing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we don't like people to just kind of slip away without exhausting all the resources we have. And so sometimes that results in over-treatment and like you have patients who end up dying in the hospital, like hooked up to wires and machines and not as comfortable or like in their home or surrounded by loved ones. Um, like, like as, you know, you have much less of likely likelihood that that would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and when, when patients are referred to hospice earlier, and hospice, for those who don't know, is an organization that um, provides palliative care, which is, you know, when you're treating somebody to, to help them be comfortable, you're not really trying to cure whatever um, illness or disease they have. It's just kind of making the person comfortable and uh, having the, the most, like, peaceful uh, death as, as possible, The, the, the whatever... A good death means to you, hospice tries, tries to give it to you in your own home, surrounded by loved ones, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, when patients are referred to hospice earlier, like hospitals don't spend money and resources on patients who would still die while receiving expensive treatment in intensive care units. And so we estimate that like, if you clarify a patient's wishes, you can save the healthcare system around 20 or $80 billion. Annually. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wild. Mm-hmm. So takeaways from this conversation I'm hearing, um, you know, have the tough, uncomfortable conversations because it's better in the end. Get the help you need for yourself by being open with your family or in other places and clarify, clarify as best as you can, as quick as you can ahead of time, the needs and wants of the patient or future patient and do all of that with the person that is, you know, ill in mind. So that it is in their best interest.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think one thing we can do too is, you know, not necessarily focus on the quantity of these conversations. Like it's often way more important that the conversations are good or high quality rather than having them a lot. Right. Because one really good conversation is better than kind of four crappy conversations. Mm. And so um, generally what quality means in this case is like, you know, family members are not, critical of their loved one's decisions usually you like express approval by saying like oh yeah I, I think that makes a lot of sense or like showing respect for the patient's independence like saying you know hey I support whatever decision you make it's your decision I'm here to support you and like affirm the relationship so say like yeah I'm really happy we can talk about this and making sure that when you're doing this you're not interrupting or patronizing mm. um, another thing that's tough with the advanced directives is it's hard to predict exactly what situation you'd be in, right? Because Hmm. often you say like, I do not want any heroic measures, right? And is a feeding tube heroic? Is an IV heroic? Yeah, it's ambiguous, yeah. Exactly. So like maybe focus on what you do want rather than what you don't want. So like allowing natural death is clearer than do not not resuscitate. Hmm. And it might help your family if you like clarify what you value the most. Do I, clear, do I value like, being around my family the most? Do I cl- value my own clarity of mind? Do I value me having the most agency as I possibly can in making the decision? Mm-hmm. And last but not least, I, I think it's helpful to have a doctor help you with an advanced directive instead of a lawyer. Um, a lot of times we fall back and ask for legal assistance in this mm, case. But, so true, yeah. You know, only 12% of people who fill out an advanced directive have any input from physicians. And so like your lawyer should not be writing your medical contract any more than like your doctor should not be helping you with your legal contract.
0: And yeah, so, you wouldn't, wouldn't have your lawyer operate on you, right?
1: <laughs> exactly, right. So like, you know, my hope in having this is, uh, in this conversation today is, um, you know, people, like I want people to feel more comfortable having conversations about caregiving, conversations about end of life discussions um, with their family members at any life stage. And as difficult as it might feel like, like, this research shows that having these conversations can pay off not only for you, but for your family, for the healthcare system in the long run.
0: Amazing. Friends, we are chatting today with Nick Anorino, Associate Professor of Health Communications at University of Michigan-Dearborn. Uh, fourth conversation, definitely not the last. Nick, as always, thanks for making time to share the good word here uh, with our audience. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me back. Awesome.